Hello, and welcome to Biotech 2050 podcast. Biotech 2050 is a think tank chronicling the disruptions changing the biotech industry over the next several decades. Check out our website at biotech2050.com. I'm James Allgood, one of today's co-hosts. I'm in product marketing for Ignite, a secure content platform focused on key global industries. I'm Rahul Chaturvedi, co-founder of Biotech 2050 and one of today's other co-hosts. I'm also the founder and CEO of Clora. Clora is a platform that provides access to the world's life sciences expertise and is the place to discover, build, and manage on-demand life science teams. I'm excited to welcome Brian Finrow, the founder and chief executive officer of Lumen Bioscience. Thanks for joining us today, Brian. Well, thank you for having me on, Rahul. Our pleasure. So to start off, we'd love to learn about the arc of your career and how you got to where you are today. Sure. Yeah. Happy to share a little about that. I grew up here in Seattle and uh, went away for college and law school, did some other things, worked on a commercial fishing boat in Alaska, but moved back after 10 years and took a job practicing law. So that's a little bit unusual, I think, in our industry. So I practiced law for 10 years at uh, most recently a, a leading law firm called Cooley LLP, which does a lot of technology and biotechnology legal work. So there I was representing early stage companies. And I really enjoyed biotechnology and at one point decided to take the plunge. It was pretty easy being in that industry to think you know what you're doing. Uh, it looks easy from the outside, right? So in a way, it was putting my money where my mouth was. I joined a small ag biotech company that went bankrupt <laughs> almost immediately. Uh, six months later, I think, bopped around doing a couple of other things. And then I ultimately landed at a great company called Adaptive Biotechnologies here in Seattle, which is in the next generation sequencing space. And they were doing very interesting work. But by that point, I migrated somewhat away from pure legal work. I was doing corporate development deal work as well. We did a lot of interesting stuff while I was there. And uh, ultimately left, though, to start Lumen Bioscience with a, an old friend of mine, actually a former client. And that's where I've been ever since. Great, Brian. You know, out of curiosity, what was the impetus for you to think about starting your own company? Well, I just I thought it would be a lot of fun. Uh, and my, uh, my co-founder is a really smart, very interesting and a funny fellow. So I thought, thought we could have a lot of fun together. It was also an opportunity to have a bigger impact. The technology as it was then, we, you know, we only had the foggiest ideas about how it could be useful, but we were pretty sure it would be very useful indeed. So it seemed like a good thing to do to dive in and make it happen. It's, it's that simple. Yeah. And so let's talk a little bit about you know, generally the biologics space and delivery methods and perhaps opportunities that you saw across the sector now. Yeah. So the interesting thing here, I mean, this sounds like maybe I'm going to be writing history retrospectively here, but honest to God, it, it did happen this way. My co-founder, Jim Roberts, pitched me on the idea, and there's been remarkably little evolution in the business plan than broad strokes from what he sold me on, got me to quit my you know, nice, cushy job that was a lot less work. The idea, in a nutshell, was to use a different manufacturing host to make biopharmaceuticals and other biologics of different sorts, proteins mostly. The observation he made is that, well, early in his career, my co-founder was in the Axel Lab. He was one of the inventors on this very famous set of patents out of Columbia University called the Axel Patents. So in the early 1980s, people had this idea that it making antibody drugs would be extraordinarily powerful therapeutic class. But they had this big problem, which you couldn't make them synthetically like all drugs had been made up to that point. But Genentech had proven that biologics could be an interesting thing. They had this very successful IPO. And the big thing that blocked that, realizing that dream, 
was the inability to manufacture them. And to manufacture them, you needed to have some kind of a cellular host to make them exactly like mammals do. So that was the big challenge, is being able to engineer mammalian cells so you can make these things. The Axel Laboratory, including my co-founder, Jim, they figured this out. It was one of the most valuable patent portfolios ever, actually, I think the most valuable in biotechnology. He was merrily collecting royalties on that because, you know, in a university, there's this sort of trickle-down economics and, uh, and even, even lowly postdocs get a slice of the, uh, the action. Fast forward 30 years, this is more or less the business plan that we set up the company around. And the simplest version of it is Jim Roberts recruits me and we recruit some other friends and we all get together and try to you know, help him one-up his younger self. And the broad application identified here is uh, looking at mammalian cells, you know, with 30 years, 40 years of history behind us now. Well, you know, it hasn't quite solved all of human disease, has it? Still plenty of diseases out there that have been intractable for existing drug development platforms. And so the idea was, well, look, what if we took cost out of the equation, took scalability out of the equation? What if you could make essentially functionally infinite amounts of therapeutics, biologics, and deliver them at essentially zero cost to the GI tract and other topical surfaces of the body. That was the core idea. There's other versions of that. You know, there's biologics are used in all kinds of other industries. You know, laundry detergents are all full of enzymes now. Those are made in living cells, right? Enzymes and proteins. And so we also thought this technology could be useful for, you know, industrial biotechnology, vet pharma, there's all kinds of stuff. That was really the, the germinal idea. The very first products well, it's just a difficult challenge to figure out once you've made a list of all the good things you could do. Yeah, you have to pick like the one, <laughs> the one thing you do first, right? That's hard. It's hard to do. It took us a while and it took some outside intervention, some ideas coming in from outside our four walls. That's great, Brian. What opportunities do you see in novel delivery methods for biologics? And what technologies are you bullish for? The very first idea, and this, this predated my coming onto the scene, Jim and some other folks in researching in this field, once they had the foundational technology for working with this microbe that makes this all possible, they were looking around for different applications. So the very first idea was to deliver a shelf-stable, orally delivered, so no injection required, no refrigerated cold chain required malaria vaccine. Now, of course, opinions are different today, but at this time, 2016, 2017, the conventional wisdom is that well, everybody knew vaccines was a terrible business to get into. And the most terrible kind of vaccine you could try to get into from a commercial perspective was malaria, because it's just really not a problem for most of the developed world, people that buy most of the drugs. So when I came in, my earliest role was playing Captain Obvious. So I you know, recapitulated the conventional wisdom and said, well, that's a terrible idea. And so what else can we do? So we looked at lots of other things. There's all kinds of you know, enzyme deficiencies in other industries. Uh, enzymes, like I said, are manufactured at massive scale. So we're looking at initially at a lot of these things. In human health, so there was a lot of focus early days on these enzyme deficiencies or enzymes that could do tricks for you, like maybe Takeda acquired a company that was making an enzyme to degrade gluten in the GI tract. So people suffering celiac disease, that would be another kind of an obvious application of this technology. Anything where you need just a kiloton quantities of whatever protein biologic you want to make is what we looked at. But what we ultimately turned out to be the good idea, it was a bit of a shaggy dog story, but some friends of friends of ours in town We'd never met actually, but had heard about Lumen and what we were, we were cooking up. This was about 12 weeks after we incorporated. Met those folks from the Gates Foundation that had a particularly thorny problem they were trying to solve. They set up this program, they called it the Synthetic Colostrum Program. 
it started with the observation that the Gates Foundation, though the origin story has a lot to do with these enteric diseases, these diarrheal diseases that kill all these kids in the developing world, but are a kind of a nuisance at best in the US. We call it traveler's diarrhea here. But in the developing world, this still kills hundreds of thousands of infants and newborns every year. And they've made basically little, very little or no progress on these over the years. There's a rotavirus vaccine out there, but most of the disease burden is caused by things like Campylobacter and an enterotoxigenic E. coli. And vaccines have mostly failed. Monoclonal antibody drugs, the injected sort, are wildly too expensive. And of course, these things are easily treatable with antibiotics, but of course, it's really a bad idea to eat antibiotics prophylactically, particularly if you're a newborn. So they came up with this new idea, which is actually a really old idea. And the reason they call it synthetic colostrum is their idea was, well, let's mimic what Mother Nature does. All mammals secrete antibodies into the breast milk. And this is one of the evolved functions of antibodies, in fact, is to neutralize pathogens in the GI tract. And so if we can just identify, as we have already done, we know what the bad bugs are in a way, and we just make a cocktail of these antibodies, we'll make a kind of a synthetic superpowered cocktail. And then there's only one problem with this is that it costs about $100 to $200 a gram to manufacture antibodies in the traditional fashion. So they're undeterred. I mean, they've got a big mission and they're willing to take some risks. So they set out about 18 months boiling the ocean, as they say, looking all around the world of trying to find anybody with any kind of technology that had the potential to help them crack this cost problem. About 12 weeks after we were the last group into that program and they approached us again through these friends of friends, random, very random serendipitous connection. They invited themselves over and they pitched us on this idea and they said, well, can you make antibodies in your, in your microbe? We said, well, you know, I didn't say this, but one of my scientist colleagues was sitting there with me, said, no, of course not. Everybody knows you can't make monoclonal antibodies in a prokaryotic host like spirulina. You need a mammalian cell, something that comes out of like a human or a hamster is what they usually use, so that it will be folded correctly with all these sugars attached to it and all this stuff that has to be exactly right for human antibody. And then they introduced us to this other class of antibodies, and that was the kind of the key that opened the whole kingdom here, called camelid antibodies, single domain antibodies. These things or popularized by the company Ablinx, a Belgian biopharma company. The beautiful thing about them is they're very easy to work with and express like champions inside microbial expression hosts, including our spirulina. So being the Gates Foundation, they come not just armed with ideas, but also with a checkbook. So they gave us a few bucks to try this out in our system. Of course, most of our effort was still focused on these different industrial <laughs> kind of applications. But this boy, this turned out to be a runner because... In addition to traveler's diarrhea, which is where we got started, there's all kinds of other unmet needs in the GI tract. And once we started thinking about it, we realized, well, it's not just the GI tract, it's any tissue of the body that is not injection oriented. So it's all of your skin, so dermatology, uh, it's your upper respiratory tract, maybe lower, all kinds of other mucosal surfaces are fair game for this. Anywhere where you've got that kind of tissue barrier function, it frees you from having to use fully human proteins. And therefore, you can use all of the tricks and tools of synthetic biology. And it's convenient that these are all filled with diseases that traditional drugs, mostly being systemically delivered or injected, have had a hard time solving. So things like traveler's diarrhea. I love those stories of random meetups that turn into something huge like that. That's great. So tell us a little bit about Lumen's pipeline. Yeah, right. So, so everything we're working on uh, has that same set of common themes. They're all disease targets that are, and maybe some of them are actually systemic diseases, but they are addressable in some fashion through a topical surface. And here topical means, well, topological, maybe in like a mathematician's sense of it, because the human body's immune system sees the inside of the GI tract as the outside world. 
you know, the human body is a tube in a way. So current programs, most advanced, Traveler's Diarrhea, of course, which continues to enjoy strong funding from the Gates Foundation, but also we've picked up funding support from Bardo's CarbEx program for that program. That program is uh, heading into phase two this fall. The second most advanced program directed at C. difficile infection, again, another one where a lot of exciting work being done in the microbiome space right now, but traditional tools, you know, small molecule drugs, biologic, injected biologics, and vaccines have all really failed to really turn the course of that disease. I think we have a lot of potential there. Thirdly, we have a program in COVID-19 that's funded by the Department of Defense Health Agency, and that's moving into phase two studies this winter. We also have a program in norovirus, which has been slowed by the coronavirus pandemic just because of shutdowns at our collaborators and things. Then we have two more uh, nascent programs, preclinical. One is in inflammatory bowel disease, and uh, this is a very obvious application of our technology. It's a chronic disease. It's a systemic autoimmune disease, if you talk to immunologists, but it undeniably has a nexus with events in the GI tract. And then finally, our newest program is our collaboration with Novo Nordisk in cardiometabolic disease. Again, a systemic disorder, but one that has very obvious nexus with the GI tract. Great, Brian. And you know, given the diversity of what's in your pipeline, we'd be curious to hear how you've thought about funding by VCs versus grants. And you know, what's your mental model for assessing when to take what sort of capital? We have venture capital backers. Uh, we've raised two rounds of venture financing. Most of our capital, though, has been non-dilutive in various forms. Gates Foundation, first of all, but also NIH and IAID and uh, Bardo's CARBEX program, as I mentioned, the Defense Health Agency, Department of Energy, believe it or not, being very interested in the productivity enhancements. That's a little bit of uh, hearkening back to the industrial products days, but a very important applications coming out there. You know, I'd say as far as our attitude toward it, my own philosophy going into this four years ago was pretty typical for folks that have worked a lot with venture-backed companies, which is to say that, you know, usually the juice isn't worth the squeeze. It can be a trap. And I certainly saw that trap play out with many of my clients back when I was doing private practice. The trap is that was well, two things. First of all, it's a tremendous distraction doing all the paperwork. You know, they're going to write all this stuff up and you send it in. And then you just wait, you wait and you wait and you wait. Peer review process takes a long time. There are reasons for that, I understand. The government money is the people's money, and <laughs> they've got to be careful about it. We doubt the fraudsters, but it's a tremendous workload that isn't compensated. You don't get a grant to apply for grants. The second thing that can happen, though, is that very easily the allure of the free money can hijack your research agenda. You can get dragged off of maybe a commercialization path because it's sort of, well, there's this project we can do, and it'll keep the doors open a little wise. You can find yourself stranded out in a no man's land of uncommercializable technology. So we've, we've avoided it for the most part, uh, except where it seems straightforward. And I would say, you know, a lot of times people ask as well, you know, Brian, I, I see you've been so successful with the Gates Foundation. You know, what's the trick to being successful with the Gates Foundation? Well, this, the obvious thing is don't screw up the science, have good science. But a lot of people have good science. The equally obvious thing that I think isn't said enough is that the most important thing with any funding organization like the Gates Foundation is to have the thing be their idea. <laughs> and if you can do that, it's a lot easier. And this whole thing was, like I say, I can't give them enough credit. They dreamed up this idea, presented us with this. We just had the good sense, well, to not screw up the science. So that's all credit to Jim, but also to recognize a good thing on one side. Great. And you mentioned a partnership with Novo Nordisk, perhaps to start. How do you think about, particularly given your corporate development background, 
how do you think about partnerships and you know, the ever-changing landscape of partnerships, particularly over the last decade or so? And then would love to better understand the partnership that you've developed with Novo Nordisk. Yeah, so I did a lot of these transactions back in the day, although none of it was architecting things from the fundamentals, you know, building the, the research plan and the kind of business plan behind that. So I'm a little bit learning as we go along here, although certainly being involved to some degree on a lot of transactions, it gives us a little bit of an advantage in thinking sophisticatedly about maybe things like the IP implications of what we're doing. But how we think about this particular collaboration, I can tell you a lot more about that. We're thrilled to death to be working with them. And I think there are probably other claimants to this crown, but in my view, they are the leading experts in the world on cardiometabolic disease, given their franchise first in insulin, but also more recently with uh, some aglutide and some other products they have. And so consequently, they've just got this tremendous wealth of knowledge, not just on, well, we can run these models and we'll understand something, but just they know how to think about thinking about it, set up a program that's destined to succeed. This is invaluable to us because the last thing we're going to be able to do anytime soon is build that kind of knowledge base internally with all of the other things we have going on. It's remarkable. We have 75 full-time employees right now, but on 20,000 square feet, we managed to have everything from early preclinical discovery. We have our own antibody display library discovery pipeline. That's what we used for the COVID-19 program with the Defense Health Agency all the way through on-site, in-house, GMP manufacturing. We do all of our own GMP manufacturing and our plant manufactures three kilograms of drug substance per week under GMP. We're building out the clinical team now. So the last thing we can do is have you know, other things happening. What we need to do is identify other companies like Novo who are aligned with us in terms of the vision for what we can do to help patients, but also have that deep expertise in a way that's complementary to the early stage discovery through early clinical and GMP manufacturing expertise that we've already built. And it seems like you've certainly done a lot with a lean team. How has COVID impacted your ability to execute against all these different assets that you have in your pipeline and any lessons learned that you're willing to share about what you've learned over the last 16 months or so? That's a great question. I think initially, like everyone else, we suffered acutely. We had a lot of things in process that were just completely scotched. We had drug materials out to collaborators to run models, you know, CROs and academic partners. We had a clinical trial spinning up that was shut down. A lot of uh, conversations we had going on with external partners got diverted. We had discussions going on with different government sector partners. And of course, their whole attention got jarringly shifted overnight to COVID. So yeah, we had all of those disruptions. It's been an opportunity for us as well. We tried to do the best we could to you know, make lemonade out of lemons. Working with the Defense Health Agency on this COVID program was a great example of this. It's just our good luck. We'd been working with the Gates Foundation on setting up the preclinical pipeline. And it was literally, it came online three weeks before the first shutdown orders hit the US. And of course, Seattle was a little ahead of the curve on that. So we put in a proposal to the DOD to try to do what we could against the pandemic with the tools that we had available. Um, we were pleased to see that they saw the vision. And so in some respects, this has been the best thing ever. Uh, I mean, really silver linings abound for a company like Lumen, where a lot of our programs are focused on infectious disease. A lot of our target markets are these sort of mass markets where the pricing isn't going to be a traditional kind of big pharma $10,000 thing. Seeing Moderna, first of all, validate the utility, not just of infectious disease focus, but also vaccines, but especially a vaccine that's making them, I think, tens of billions of dollars this year and sells for under 20 bucks a pop. 
uh, has been tremendously validating for all kinds of other work that we're doing. Great, Brian. Well, thank you for joining us today and for sharing a bit about your background and the exciting work that's ongoing at Lumen. Look forward to having you back in the future as you progress your pipeline. Thank you. I look forward to it. Thanks, Brian. Thank you for listening to this episode of Biotech 2050. This episode is hosted by me, Rahul Chaturvedi. It's edited and mixed by Megan Lovering. If you enjoyed this episode of Biotech 2050, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at biotech2050pod. Again, that's biotech2050pod. Until next time.